listeners, welcome back to Trash and Treasures, where we watch the movies other people throw away. My name is Vry, and with me as always is Dorothy. Hello. And poor Sean has been trapped in a room with no internet and a lot of people, so we're flying just the two of us this week. It's kind of a bummer, but we are talking about Neil Gaiman. (laughs) Alas, we are not talking about the Neil Gaiman you're thinking of. Oh, but Neil Gaiman adaptations are so hot right now. I mean, this is topical. <laughs> That's Yes, watch as we try very hard not to turn this into a Good Omens cast. Why? I feel like a Good Omens cast is something the world could use right now. New plan. Well, I mean, if, if the people want it, that's something we could do in the future. Cough, cough, hint, hint. But that's not a bad book. But that's a good book. Stardust is... Okay. All right. Now we have to do this now. So we're talking about 2007's uh, Stardust, <laughs> which is based on a 1997 novel by Neil Gaiman, which I meant to reread before we did this, but everything we own is in moving boxes, so that didn't happen. Um, but I can't hate this book because it was the first Gaiman book I ever read. Wow. And I just loved it so very much. <laughs> Without Stardust, I wouldn't have read Good Omens. <laughs> it, it was for a high school reading club. They were trying to reach the kids, you know. Oh, was it one of the ones all those... that had all the, um, the, the, the group questions in the back? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's that um, if, if y'all are pulling out to compare at home, it's, it's the white one with the sort of blue uh, floral patterning on it that's got the group questions in the back yes i'm sure we've got a lot of uh hardcore stardust fans up in here you don't know man gaming fans go hard (laughs) you should know that do you know how many hundreds of dollars i spent on my sandman collection talking to me about yes they're very fancy uh yeah oh sandman that's a beautiful comic that hasn't aged well well parts of it are beautiful if you get past that first issue it has Jonathan Crane in it. That That's nothing. That doesn't matter, but it matters to me. <laughs> the first issue is ugly. I'm sorry. I, I know that. It's hideous. That, that the artist worked very hard on it, but it's very lumpy and grotesque and not in a way I find attractive. Because it's a nightmare, man. Do you see? No. This is what David McKeon's job is, is to make things look like nightmares. So many paintbrush strokes. So much confusion when you pick it up and it's like your third Western comic and the art keeps changing. You don't know what's happening. You didn't know, you didn't realize that it was a rotating. <laughs> no, I went from Joan and Vasquez to Sandman. Oh, so total and like, creative control Al- to DC's in-house people rotating it. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't know what this was. I was very confused. Sandman's not actually a good starter comic, y'all. I know that that's how people treated it in the 90s, oh, yeah. but it's not. Yeah, it was the comic that was on every Rex list for, here's how you get somebody started on comics. Let's be real, it's, here's how you get your girlfriend to read comics. I wasn't that's how say people it, but were yes, pitching that is it. how every single one of those lists put it. My girlfriend doesn't like superheroes. How do I make her read comics so that I don't have to learn about any of her interests? And she can accompany me to the comic book shop and it'll count as going out. Yep. 
I speaking of which, I don't think I've read Sandman since about the time that I read Stardust. I I still have a lot of positive th- feelings about Sandman, but um, the death stories are better. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because death is the best character and Dream is a dick. Uh, oh, and I yeah. think no one remembers that Dream is a dick. Oh yeah, M- Morpheus is a fuckboy. <sighs> oh, oh, but the Lucifer closes hell. But I, I feel like my feelings about Stardust, eh, they might not hold up if I actually went back to it. But my memory of that book is it was the first time that I had it was a subversion, read... man. Well, a yeah, but oh, like also I hadn't read too much. Uh, I, I feel like this book straddles the line between YA and, and adult fantasy. But like I had read some Tamara Pierce and... Uh, Diana Wine Jones, but that was right. You like kind the series of where that had the cat on it, right? Yes, Crestomancy. God, I loved the Crestomancy books, but like those were a very different Euro, you know, sort of Euro fantasy books. Whereas Gaiman was pulling a lot Hardcore more from English the fantasy. Uh huh. F- very fairy tale logic, which I've always loved about him. His he really has that skill for stating absurd fairy tale logic as though it's natural. And I feel like I've never shaken that. I love that shit. Yeah, he, he's definitely the most horror-leaning, I feel, of that particular crop of um, of British and English fantasy and sci-fi authors from the second half of the 20th century, where their turns of phrase all sort of centered on dissimiles and, um, and their plots worked through absurdities. Mm-hmm. Which, like, there was a very specific that school. that stuff is my shit, and I'm pretty sure it's because of Gaiman. <laughs> oh yeah, Gaiman's a great writer. I mean, he can't write an ending to save his life. That's why his oh, short God. stories are all the best parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his short stories are good. Well, and that's he got away with that with Sandman because Sandman is an anthology comic. Like theoretically, mm-hmm. there's a plot, an overarching plot, but it's actually an anthology comic. Right. So when it just kind of peters off, it seems poetic. Well, and it's also focused on a cyclical storytelling rather than um, a heroic arc. So when Sandman ends, it just implies that it's going to keep going. So structurally, it lends itself well to all of to all of his writing quirks. Welcome to Sandman Cast. <laughs> Sandcast. We'd be killed. We'd be killed. <laughs> it is relevant, though, because uh, Neil's inability to write endings has always dogged adaptations of his work. I mean, that's why he wrote Good one Omens ending. is the strongest. He has written one ending in his career. He saved it up. <laughs> Good Omens has an ending because of Terry, and you know no, it. No, no, the new ending, though. Oh, that was he some good shit. He added an additional ending on, and... It, I feel like he saved up his whole career to manage to write that. <laughs> he added a fanfic ending and it was beautiful. It was okay, fucking awesome. Someday I need, to, I really need to sit down and explain to people why the only reason that ending works is because of how it integrates with the existing themes. <laughs> mm, good shit. Good shit. <laughs> this is not that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's not. Uh, y'all may remember, I think the other most, oh, more famous than this, probably aside of, before Good Omens, the most famous adaptation of Gaiman's work is Coraline, which also has a non-ending. But but why be came and saved the day? 
I understand his function in the plot, but that doesn't mean I like it. Why he doesn't exist in the book, kiddos? Oh, it's because you can't have a very internal monologue type character on film. It doesn't work. I hate Wybie. I mean, pitch him into the well. Dark. <laughs> Stardust has the same problem, where it is a uh, very fairy tale type story, uh, with kind of a hey, everybody goes home ending. Uh, same as American Gods. Same as. Wow, Neil really likes the everybody goes home non climax, the non frontation, as I call it. Um. He he did a whole poem about how that's the quintessential structure of the fairy tale or or the quest um the quest style storyline is that it ends with everybody going home, but being changed and and home looking smaller. So it's actually something he believes in as an intrinsic part of the form. I can answer that one. <laughs> I mean, yes, we all we all remember the the scar uh the the scarring of the Shire, etc. <laughs> etc. Et into the West, but it does it doesn't lend itself well to Hollywood screenplays, shall we say? Which makes Stardust kind of an odd duck because you know who they picked for the director of this film? Who's that? Matthew Vaughn, a.k.a. Mr. X-Men First Class, a.k.a. Mr. Kingsman, a.k.a. Kick-Ass, a.k.a. the producer of Guy Ritchie movies, Mr. Bang Bang Shoot Explode. An action director, that's a choice. I, I enjoyed Kingsman. I, it seems fun. I, I like things about First Class. It's not really a good movie, but. You just like how gay it is. Yeah. That's always why I like movies. Let's be real. I I actually have no answer for why he ended up the director for this film. I do know why this film exists. It's because of J.R.R. Tolkien. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this was during that glut where Hollywood was just rubber stamping any fantasy property? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, well, uh license to print money and we gotta stuff this bubble before it bursts exactly well return of the king had come out in what oh five sure somewhere ar around there uh because fellowship was oh one and then that became a license to print money and then after that they started going so this uh, is shit. no it was 2003 okay that's earlier than i remembered yeah. Wow, those came out fast. So this is 07, uh, so this would have been right when fantasy was about to be subsumed by zombie movies. Yeah, so you have Return of the King in 03, and then there's this scramble to get just whatever you can on the screen. Like in uh, 2004, you have the film adaptation of Ella Enchanted, which I feel Ooh, like is yes. very much in the mold. Yeah, you got big mads about that movie. Oh, Oh, I have feelings about that. See, it's funny to me because I think we're in opposite positions where that's the one where I saw the movie and, like, didn't hate it before I read the book, which is obviously better. But, like, the movie is just a very Hollywood, spunky, Shrek-type film, which is very much also what it's yeah, going for. I hate for. it. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate it so much that I've never been able to sit down and watch Enchanted. Because Damn. The title okay, Enchanted me. is nice. <laughs> so oh, that was around this. I think that was the same year as this. 
man, there was a minute there, wasn't there? Uh-huh. There was that Drew Barrymore uh, Cinderella movie. Yeah, it was like a whole thing of just trying to go for these well, we want that Lord of the Rings money, so literary properties are good, but also Shrek was a big deal, so make them irreverent. But also, we don't want to have to put money into anything franchise length, so make it all one-shots. Which is how you end up with, I don't know, a big-budget Neil Gaiman movie. And I feel like this contrib- like this weird, poorly thought-out boom contributes directly to Game of Thrones. Because, you know, that started out as... Not your nerds fantasy. Which was very much playing off. Like, because people liked Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings was big and prestigious and people died in it. But then you had this, like this late 2000s sort of happy, fun, jokey fantasy boom. And that's for nerds and losers. Well, and Lord of the Rings was part of the romance genre. Not not as we use the word now, but in a literary sense. Um, the genre that it built off of was called the romance and you know other works in that genre are like the leather stocking tales and stuff like that by james fenimore cooper they're it's speaking to um a very specific literary tradition and then it affected a lot of the way fantasy developed and then so then you've got all of these other works in conversation with it with the sort of very serious but also idealistic lord of the rings it's not that the monarchy is broken children it's that the true king needs to come back and fix it the system is fine tolkien's boner for medievalism has been plaguing us for decades (laughs) damn him you love catholic i feel like we're avoiding talking about this movie because it wasn't very good I expected, honestly, to like it more, because I did see it right when it came out. Um, I read the book. I'm trying to remember now if, you know, the impetus behind having this book club was because the film had been announced but wasn't out, because it would have been probably about 05. Um, But then, so I I saw the movie in 07, like, hot off of being so dazzled by this book and reading all of Gaiman's stuff and being very in that moment. His prose uh-huh just just really dazzled by his prose in particular and not yet stepping back and going wait a minute there are only a couple adaptations of his work where where that voice really translates on screen mm-hmm. they tried with this they brought Surrey in it and everything but like i so much of gaiman is in the particular way he tells stories and the way he's speaking to existing traditions that it's almost impossible to pull it out into something that stands on its own. That's why you've got projects that have languished for 30 and 40 years. Mm-hmm. And, and I, like, I feel like Discworld has struggled with that, but less. Yeah, the Discworld miniseries um, that exist are all generally pretty good but they're also miniseries so they have room to breathe i think whereas the option here was you know now we live in an age of uh of nerd prestige drama so thank god good omens could be a miniseries this is not a good omens cast that's for another day (laughs) but this had to fit into not just we have a two-hour film god this film is too long it is two hours and eight minutes but also it has to fit into the three-act structure 
And it's so disappointing because this would have been, this came out two years after the Mirror Mask movie, which oh. was incredible. That's the one he wrote first directly as a screenplay, wasn't yes, it? Yes, and, and then, then got adapted a companion backwards. Book that's not. It's not like it was adapted from the companion book. And it works much better. Yeah. Well, it turns out if you start out writing for a medium, it tends to do better. Because then when, you know, he does the visual equivalent of his pretty prose, which is right for visual scenery, which is... Is it just me or is this movie really dull to look at? It's very flat, visually. That There's not a lot going on. Even in terms of the costume design and stuff, it's like a less bright version of the Alice movie. Mm-hmm. Oh... Oh, you're right. Oh. Like, it's like oh. a, a watered and dulled down version of the Alice flick. Well, and you'd think it would be doing that thing that literally all movies about the green space do, where, you know, the, the average workaday world is gray and, you know, Kansasy, and then you step through and, and it's all bright and new and beautiful. But it can't even pull that off? No, there's no visual distinction between one side of the veil and the other. And I guess we gotta talk about the plot now. Yes. Yes. 20 minutes in, let's get to the plot. It's fine. You come here for the context, right? For our weird, <laughs> rambly contextualizing of shit. Uh, so the plot of this film is that uh, and again, once upon a time. So plot is not necessarily the most important thing here. But it is how we get yeah. through this this vehicle that is called a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like th this book is his take on the uh, the quest narrative. So it's a lot of, you know, pop like vignettes of trials that eventually get the hero to where he needs to go and back home again. But such as it is, the plot is that uh, there is a village called Wall and... Uh, on one side of it is a normal village, and on the other side is the realm of Fae. Not explicitly stated in the film, but that's what it's doing. And in between it is a big old wall with one gap in it. And one night, uh, this dude slips through and goes to visit the uh, fairy market and bangs a chick and goes home and never thinks of her again. Bangs a chick because he's who terrible. specifically tells him that she is a slave and cannot escape and is trapped there. And he just kind of goes away. He makes one attempt to cut her chain, and then when that doesn't work, he's like, oh, well. But he pockets that piece of chain, which is important, because a, the chain is very good for tying women up. <laughs> this is a movie about men who are terrible. <laughs> and women who are worse. Well, except for the one woman. Oh, right. And the gay. He's still terrible. You know what? I'm coming down on That's this. Captain Shakespeare is terrible. <sighs> But Robert De Niro is doing his best Robin Williams in the birdcage. He is. He seems like he's having fun being in a movie that's not a Fockers movie. <laughs> and bless him for that. So nine months later, as you do, uh, consequences come home to roost for this asshole and somebody leaves a baby on his doorstep. You know, a child who is half mundane and half fae. And the baby grows up and, and his name Daredevil. is Tristan. Ch Charlie Cox, not Ben Affleck. <laughs> he grows up into TV's Daredevil, but with floppier hair. Does that count as TV's Daredevil? 
Netflix is Daredevil. Sure. Streaming's Daredevil. <laughs> Cancels Daredevil. And uh, as most, he is just, y'all, the nicest guy. <laughs> yes, Tristan is trying to uh, woo the heart of his lady love, who is... Some chicken town. Yeah. Who already has a boyfriend who is planning to propose to her. And like, she's aware but of this that dude... and excited about it. Uh-huh. And this dude will not give up. Our hero. Yeah, he, like, follows her through town. He loses his job by being an asshole to everybody else at his job in order to give her special treatment. He keeps coming to her house in the middle of the night. Y'all. Mm, nice guy, Tristan. Oh, he's so nice, this guy. I feel like this is one of those moments where we're going to have to put a not Neil's fault stamp on it. Because this is definitely a change for the for uh, the Hollywood formula rearing its head in that uh she, veronica as her name is is a haughty bitchy cheerleader in fantasy clothes well no she's not in fantasy clothes she's a boring mundane woman excuse me in a peasant outfit then vaguely fantasy adjacent whereas in the book she's just like some chick who would like this creepy stalker to leave her alone very reasonable uh-huh. going to get married to a nice dude that she loves this asshole won't leave her alone. Yep. Well, but he keeps belaboring the point that he really wishes people wouldn't call him a shot boy because he's not a shot boy. He's going to do something, some nebulous thing he's going to do. He has no plans or reasons or anything, but like. But like, you know, he, he can sense that he's the special in a fantasy uh-huh. movie. So to get him to go the hell away, she says, all right, I want you to go pick up that falling star and bring it back for me, and then I'll marry you. Assuming, I guess, that she'd never see him again. Well, again, he suggests this bullshit. Well, and there's a ticking time, or the, the, there's a, a ticking clock, because her her boyfriend is going to come and propose to her in a week. All of this, is, and he thinks this is still a good idea. All of this is nonsense. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile... Across the wall in Fantasyland, the best the king is dying, <laughs> and it's amazing. So uh, the king is dying, and he has called together his sons, all of whom are failures, and have failed. Well, all the and, remaining and- ones have failed to kill one another. Mm-hmm. So there is not one clear successor. You dumb fuck ups. How dare! Deeply disappointed in all of you for not murdering one another hard enough. Like that is literally the whole thing about this dynasty they're just cartoonishly hilariously evil mm-hmm and all of, and until the next uh and until the next heir takes the throne all of the dead siblings have to hang around and be the ghost greek chorus and it's uh, very good it's kind of great like we get to see rupert everett chucked out a window in this scene it's great <laughs> it's kind of amazing so the dying king takes the uh takes the uh MacGuffin, his pendant, and he chucks it out the window and says, I go get it. Well he takes the red color out of the ruby first because it will only be restored when the the, the last remaining, you know, male heir of the kingdom. This is heavily emphasized because we gotta point out that patriarchy is a thing. God. Would have been better this if this movie you had thinks just it's not. saying a thing, but it's not. 
Like, if you had just made one of the princes a sister and just not made it about the patriarchy. Oh, but their their dear sister hasn't been seen in years, and it's so sad. But what I'm saying is, it would be less dumb and cartoonish Mm -hmm. if you had just not attempted to make a statement here. A statement that it then doesn't do anything with. Not a thing. Not a damn thing. Not one thing does it do. Mm -hmm. So when he chucks the MacGuffin out the window, it knocks a star out of the sky, and that's the star that Tristan sees on his side of the wall. So the two opposing groups set out on their quest, and Tristan gets there first because he has a magic candle. Which, they mentioned that it's made... That it's made with black magic, but they never really address that or anything. <laughs> that that he's got this. We will not be talking about this. Uber evil artifact, and he gets a couple of them over the course of it. But he's the good guy, so it's fine. It's fine for him to be using blood magic. <laughs> Thank you, Meryl. You're doing great, sweetie. <laughs> but remember when uh, when Michelle Pfeiffer does it, it it is evil. Okay, how often do fucking stars fall in this town, judging by how fast her magic powers get eaten up? Clearly, frequently. Like, the timeline of this does not... Like, they're, they're witch... So Catwoman is up. there, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure her casting is basically entirely because she was in Ladyhawk. Oh, I think... Which I was mean, another film that I was also, I th- doing for this slot, but I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. Someday. But, like, I'm pretty sure her entire presence is just a reference to the genre. I mean, she was also just in Golden Compass. That was Kidman. Which did not fit the... But that was the... Kidman. God damn it! It's too more. When she came on screen, I was like, oh, hey, look, it's Nicole Kidman. And I was like, N- no. That's Michelle Pfeiffer. I can't tell people apart. (laughs) It's bad. You also can't tell entire bands apart, and that's funny. No. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. (laughs) All pretzels. Yeah, so that is our third party chasing after the star is a trio of witch queens who need uh, the heart of a star to restore their youth and beauty, something, something. It's commentary, but also it's super not. Yeah, it's this whole thing about how it, it's poisonous that um, that women feel the need to, to chase after youth and youth culture. and um, But also it's literally about witches who only have power while they're young and hot. And um, and the only woman who is exempt from this, this whole bitchy um, dynamic is Yvain, the star who is immortal and young forever. Forever. Well, and it's a real fuck you at the end when the movie faints towards acknowledging this. And then it's like, no, she's just bitchy and evil. Yep. Don't care for it. You know what else I don't care for? Tristan? The main romance. (laughs) Tristan? Yeah. Take this man placed directly in garbage. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's the thing is that, like, Generally not when Hollywood does them, but as a rule, I like bickery type romantic relationships. I'm a Benedict and Beatrice kind of person. Speaking of which, we really need to watch that one. Yes. We really need to watch the one with the Doctor and Donna. Yes, I'm here for it. (laughs) 
I, I want I want to hear her degrade him. It's gonna be uh-huh. good. I mean, David Tennant kind of at his best when being degraded. Let's face it. We're all here for that shit. Doesn't matter your gender or orientation. All of Tumblr agrees with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's also, I might be able to interest you in a TV series where Olivia Coleman constantly yells at and, degra- and degrades him. Hmm. You have my you interest. Do you like Olivia Coleman? I do. She's pretty. And yet this movie completely fails to, s- to sell this dynamic because... He's just awful. He's just a literal monster. Mm-hmm. Slightly less awful than the book. Because they pull some magic bullshit. So he has slightly less consequences. No, he's equally as awful as he was in the book. There are just less consequences for him here. I'm revising my statement. I spent... Because, again, it's been a decade. I spent forever trying to figure out if... If Claire Danes as Yvain was this hashtag sassy as she was in the book like in the book as in the film and or if that was just like you know the style of the time because prince of the when they made prince of persia into a movie too with uh, jake gyllenhaal playing a persian man mm, good idea all around they Apparently did that they just as apologized well. for that like this week Mm-hmm. a little late a little late i think he's spent that money by now it's okay. a little he hollow a now he's having a midlife crisis I'm not actually saying it's okay, to be clear. <laughs> I just wanted to dunk on the chain. <laughs> so, like, that was a thing, too, because, again, Shrek. Gotta Shrek it up. But I think... Ella Enchanted that was so my- heavily influenced by Shrek by having that kung fu sequence in it. Mm-hmm. Everything is Shrek's fault is, I think, what you will find when looking at uh, movies after 2001. No, 1999, wasn't it? God. Yeah. I mean, that's basically the choice you had when making a movie like this. You could either have women be a total non-presence, like in Lord of the Rings, or you could have women there, but they get one personality and it's sassy. Mm Mm-hmm. And a very flat kind of sassy, because again, she, she complains and she insults him and whatever, but at the end of the day, she still gets tied to a tree. I mean... And constantly kidnapped. She is no Beatrice. There's a reason they cast her as Juliet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had... Claire... I I definitely had a moment of, like, yeah, man, where did Claire Danes go? And, and like, she did like with all actresses... And, mm-hmm. um, Polish Wedding. Uh, yeah, she did a bunch of stuff beauty, in the 90s as, like, a child star. Poor dear, her first kiss was Jared Leto. Let's have a moment of silence for that. When she was 14. Oh. And he was 21. Mm. On my so-called life. What, what, this what poor color baby. was her hair? Guys, answer in the comments. <laughs> I know y'all know it. The internet will tell us. Yeah, I, like, I'll be real, I'd kind of assumed that, that this was one of those ran afoul of a Weinstein situations, and that's why I hadn't, like, clocked her after about 2010, but it's okay. It turns out she just went to do Homeland, and that show is still running for some fucking reason. Hmm. Glad she's still working. Eh, well, that's nice. Yeah. And I guess annoying McFuckboy is Daredevil, yep. or was Daredevil. So people got out of this movie alive, to my great surprise. 
They have no chemistry is the thing. I feel like movies like this can work. Yeah, it's kind of shocking how little chemistry they have. She has more chemistry with Captain Shakespeare. Uh Uh-huh. Which I think is just a case of De Niro charisma just flattening everybody else on screen. Charlie Cox feels like a very inexperienced actor in this. So he's not even able to put any nuance into this terrible fuckboy he's playing. He's just kind of I mean, it's not a great role to begin with. And then. So, yeah. So he is dragging her back to town under the, uh, you know, false assumption that he'll. Mm hmm. Because he's a dick and doesn't care. But yeah, so he teleported on top of her after she'd already fallen out of the sky and and he injured her leg more when he landed on her. And then he decided he was just going to kidnap her and force march her back to town. Also, he was supposed to use this candle to find his mom, you know, the, the woman who is enslaved. He super didn't. In fact, he doesn't try to find his mom at all. It just kind of happens because plot. But yeah, so he's forced marching this this captive woman across territory that he does not know because he has never been here before. Because there is a very funny uh, about how the wall is guarded by an old man, but can kick your ass. And that clock is still just a ticking away. And then we enter into like a series of vignettes, basically, where she gets away from him and wanders into a trap set by Michelle Pfeiffer, the witch. And there is a very hilarious deep-voiced woman joke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Michelle Pfeiffer force femmes somebody? Yep. Well, first she made him into a goat. So, you know, it's a whole panoply of kinks. Yep. And then she turns another goat into, like, looking like a person. But but this is a goat. This is silly. It's silly because that's a goat. Goats aren't (laughs) people. You're doing silly goat things. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if they catch her at an inn, she'll be happier, and then her heart will be more potent, etc., etc. Yeah, they, they need her heart to shine while they extract it. And meanwhile, every time Michelle Pfeiffer uses magic, um, she shrivels up into a hideous mummy more. Yep. Because really, as we all, as we women all know, you're with me here, ladies, right? All, we always have to choose between being beautiful or making uh, decisions with agency. I hear that's a tr- I hear that's a struggle for you. It sounds tough. <laughs> yeah. And the main point of this entire sequence is so that Tristan can swing in and save her, and she'll feel grateful to him, as opposed to super pissed off that he has kidnapped her. And, and meanwhile, because the necklace is what conked her out of the sky they've just like been casually carrying it around so all of the princes who are still alive they're killing one another off in the background in their plot line are using divination to follow that around and there's one really good joke where one of the princes catches up to them at the inn and unfortunately is caught unawares and is killed naked in the bath <laughs> And when she slits his throat, uh-huh. it bleeds this bright cerulean. It's it's a very good joke. It's so good. Like, just a literal blue blood joke that nobody comments on. 
not one person reacts to it. Like, not even the guy from Regular World, because he's not there. So it's just there visually. <laughs> I feel like that moment is peak actually understanding what the effect of Neil's prose looks like on screen. Where something is just the wrong color. Yeah, where something is just weird and odd and everybody takes it as given. It's very, very good. So they get out using the candle and oh no, now they have no candle candle left. But they're dumbasses because Tristan was like, hey, think of home while we use this. And so somehow it split the difference between going to wall and going to wherever the fuck the stars live. So they end up standing on a cloud because apparently clouds are solid. Sure. And then they get picked up by spy sky pirates. Mm-hmm. And I had our Fair City flashbacks, even though time, you know, because things occur in the order in which I perceive them. They are lightning wranglers. They are. And this lasts maybe a page in the book, but... Yeah, I read the book after, so I was honestly very disappointed that, that we didn't get more of the pirates. Because the pirates are... Terrible, fun. but more interesting than the rest of it. They bring a lot of energy to the yeah. film in kind of a, a pleasant way. Like, I, I definitely could see the uh, the screenwriters going, oh shit, we have Robert De Niro, and also, oh shit, these t- this relationship is still completely fucking unbelievable. And also, we need our hero to be able to do, you know, masculine fighting stuff for, for the end sequence. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so they are brought on board and duly menaced, but as it turns out, in fact... Captain Shakespeare has a secret. And that he's a big... He, he's a big old Tiaboo. <laughs> that is his secret. It is his secret. <laughs> also, he's gay. He's super gay. Yeah. Something, something toxic masculinity. We get to learn what the slur is in this universe. Mm. It is wopsy. I feel like if you're going to do a made up slur, you shouldn't maybe choose one that has like a different real world slur contained within itself. And also sounds like another one. Like, I feel like there's levels here of bad decision. Mm-hmm. This is another one of those points in the movie where, like, I feel like it, it thinks it's saying a thing, but in fact it's saying a different thing that's annoying. So, yeah. So Captain Shakespeare's whole deal is that as a lad, he was super, super into England because the grass is always greener and he's fascinated by the idea of, I don't know, boring fucking farming community. And theater. But... His dad died and he was pressured to take over the family business of getting a hold of lightning illegally and also raping people. You know, as pirates do. The the rape thing is a serious running gag and I'll come back to that because it actually really bothers me. And so he's he's had to sort of develop this very um, harsh piratey persona in order for his crew to respect him. And it's something about, like, having to hide your true self and blah, blah, blah. But then you mixed it with an actual closeted situation on top of this closeting metaphor, which is a decision. 
as most closet narratives by straight people tend to turn out, uh, the straights were cool with it all along, and they always knew, and you were very silly for not trusting them. But also, they never I hate that it. shit. Mm-hmm. Be- because he is gay, we we get treated to a whole sequence where he teaches them to dance and picks out a nice wardrobe for them and cut Tristan's hair so he looks like less of a dumbass, which honestly is a very good visual there because he, he cuts Tristan's hair longer. He gives him a haircut and he comes out with longer hair. It's good. It's more it's of that good, good gag. shit. Like, the unremarked visual stuff in this movie is pretty good. It's just when anybody's talking or doing anything. It's yet another thing where, like, I, I like this in practice, uh, or in theory, like, the idea of, you know, the person who acts tough but is secretly quite soft and their extremely protective gang. That's shit that I'm here for in theory. In theory. But again, it's badly executed. And no shade on De Niro, who is genuinely doing his best. No, he's really fun to watch. Like, even with as bad of a role this, as this is, he is likable in it. He's doing mm-hmm. what he can. And of course, that we later foment the, oh no, his crew must step up and protect him in a moment of vulnerability because he's cornered by the last living prince, Septimus. Because I guess for all his years of Captain Lee Wiles... He didn't notice someone sneaking on board his ship? And, like, murdering half his crew? Because... Well, because he was busy being femme. Which apparently... Which, like... The minute you, you start uh, putting on a beauty mark and dancing around in a dress, because, oh yeah, we go there. It uh-huh. immediately it's tanks the whole. your attack score. And it made me unduly angry, because, yes non-conforming gender presentation good queer people exploring these things good uh liability cis people and straight mm-hmm. cis people and straight people exploring these things the conversation i just had with my family last week uh where apparently one of my relatives is under the impression that my my straight trans cousin is in fact just a gay man who won't admit it because you know those gay men they dress like women all the time i hate i hate i hate Last week, straight filmmakers don't. Well, and and again, it's also bad because it's presented as this dichotomy of violent, effective masculinity versus femininity that exists only to cause problems in this world. Like, femininity is the biggest obstacle this planet has. The only reason Yvonne gets out on that one is because she's not from this planet. Mm-hmm. It keeps wanting to set up this concept of the absurdity of patriarchal uh, systems, but then it doesn't offer any counterpoint to them. Like, like you said, the women are just evil or useless, or femininity makes or you ugly and uh, fat and evil. Well, and or passive. And even when we have a man exploring femininity, that makes him weak and in need of protection. And even if mm-hmm. we get some lip service afterwards about how everybody still really believes in him as their their strong captain, the, the setup for the sequence of events did not operate that way, functionally. Full parody. Like, the, the I feel like the successful way to do this scene, if you must, is that 
you do a hard cut where he's where he thinks you know where Septimus thinks he's sneaking up on the guy. In fact, he has, and and in fact, Shakespeare has got the drop uh-huh. on him. Or or even you have Septimus pop up and look all threatening, and then you do a hard cut away, and then you cut back. And no, no. In fact, bitch, you thought you would come onto his ship. And then, like, you at least, like, then you can still do the the crew comes to their captain's aid if they struggle and, like, he loses the upper hand or whatnot. But, like, you don't... this. But, yeah, it's just structurally not very good. And, like, 2007 wasn't a great time, but I feel like it was better than this. And meanwhile, during all of this, um, the witch is still having a bad day because every few minutes we cut to her and she's not found them yet and is being cranky about it. Mm-hmm. And continues to keep wasting her magic on, you know, attempting beauty upkeep because those women, they're not just vain, they're dumb about it. No, no, it's that she, her beauty would last if she didn't keep wasting her magic on magic stuff. But the problem right, is Right, but there's that scene calling... of her in the carriage where like... No, no, she keeps calling her sisters and stuff. And every time she does that, like a clump of hair falls off or her hands get liver spotty or whatever. Which like shout out to the makeup team. Yeah. That's some nice shit. Also, Evane's dresses are pretty. You know, compliment sandwich. Evane's dresses are very plain. The blue one is nice. Mm -hmm. The silver one is extremely not difficult to make. The biggest problem they had with that one was keeping it steamed so it didn't have creases in it and making sure you didn't snag it on anything. Costumer wisdom. And so because this is a fairy tale and things work on fairy tale logic, they get they, they get down from uh, the ship and they immediately run across Tristan's mother and uh, her, her, her owner. Yeah, who has been previously cursed to not be able to see the star because she pissed off Michelle Pfeiffer earlier in the plot separately. Because mm-hmm. it's clever, right? Because it all interlocks. Yes, when I was when I was 15, I did think it was very clever. So she cannot perceive the existence of Yvaine. Which is how they get back to town just near the wall, basically, is the function of this. And also so that so Tristan's, Tristan's mother can know he's about. And he has a lucky magic um, glass snowdrop that his mom gave his dad when they banged. So romantic. And um, so he trades it to this lady in exchange for safe passage to the wall. And she's like, I promise that when I let you out there, you'll be in exactly the same condition as you are now. And he's an idiot. Who hasn't read his fairy Uh tales. So she turns him into a mouse. And he's again the worst. While being Mm -hmm. a mouse, he's the worst. Yes, you would think. Being small and cute. I feel like Ratatouille should no. kick his ass. Like Amos from Ben and Me would hold him down and punch him. Feed him to Nicodemus. But, so, assuming that he can't understand her, she spills her guts and confesses her love, which he then proceeds to hold over her head her. later. Like, she asks him to indicate whether he can understand her. And he lies. And he sits there being a mouse and does not. Just so that he can hear this woman confess her love, while saying also that she's not going to get in the way of him transporting her back as chattel to show off to this girl he wants to fuck. 
Yep. Oh, but it's fine, But because when they get to town, he says that he loves her too, and they bang. Yep. And her boundaries are not violated at all. And then... And then rom-com. And then we do the thing that I hate the most in the world. The most in the world. The act. It is the third. It's the third. We have reached it. So now, we, because the, our couple has gotten together, we have to manufacture some reason for them to not be together anymore. Because we have to have our climax. I don't think she had one. No, almost certainly not. <laughs> that was the glow of low expectations. Because, see, he makes her magically glow. Mm-hmm. With his dick. Tristan wakes up after the banging. Doesn't wait for Doesn't her. Doesn't wake her up. Just cuts off a chunk of her hair. Which is creepy. Totally normal thing to do. And decides that he's going to go across the wall and call it all off. Which, like, this woman is so clearly uninterested, you stupid dipshit. Why didn't you just not go back? (laughs) But, you know, gotta do this right. Wouldn't want to disappoint her. Well, but it's also a a dick-swinging thing of, hey, hey, look, I got the thing, and and I've decided, nah. And, like, he's gonna leave her a note and be like, I'll be right back in five. But he can't find a piece of paper. So he leaves a message with the innkeeper. Who clearly hates Who him. doesn't give a shit. Probably because he had to listen to that last night. Who then, basically on purpose, misdelivers it so that Yvain understands it as, yeah, peace out, bye, I, get, I went back to the other chick. And so she is going to wander across the wall in despair, but oh no, if she does that, she will become an ordinary rock. Yes, this is revealed just now. Just in time. Again, meanwhile, his mom is around, but like, nobody's doing anything about that. Forced to be a bird. Yep. She's a bird sometimes. It's a thing. So he goes across the wall. Mm Mm-hmm. There have been other, like, changes to make it more movie-y and less episodic, but this is the other, like, really big fuck you one where in the book she's like, oh man, I didn't actually think you were going to do this, but, like, I I did make a promise, like, so I guess me, I'll so... marry you. So mm-hmm. I guess I have to marry you. And he, uh, like, apologizes to her for being that guy. Another big change in the book is that, um... That thing where he was making a vein to a forced march cross country um, during the daytime when she should be asleep when she had a leg injury. Yeah, in the book, she was permanently disabled because of this. But don't worry, the uh, the movie makes it easy. Yeah, just wave some witch powers at it. Because that makes it easier for us to forgive him for doing that. Just causing her a permanent physical disability by being a dick. This fucker. But don't worry, Tristan's mom, who is cri- who was just criminally underrated. Oh, by the way, the major change for the movie is that uh, he gets to show off and make her look shallow and stupid and also kick her boyfriend's ass at, ass at swordplay because he's so cool now and he doesn't need them. And it's such a nerd boy revenge fantasy. Yeah. Gag me. And again, in the book, it was not like that. It was seriously that he was that weird guy and has made everything awkward for everyone. And because he is more mature now, after a week of this, he's like, wow, that was a really fucked up thing I did. Um, so, hey, I got you this. Um, but, yeah, sorry about that. Um, she unwraps the handkerchief that he put, again, his girlfriend's hair that he stole mm-hmm. in. Thanks, Dennis. <laughs> but 
But did he keep audio tapes? <laughs> if they had existed, yes. Where are his tools? <laughs> well, she has to come back with, with him, him because of the implications. Oh God! But, but the space pirates, the, the, the air pirates, fry. It's just the implication uh, scene. Uh huh. You know, because of the implications. You never came back to that, yeah, by the way. I'll come back to that after we finish talking about the plot, because that's a bone I gotta pick. But, so she unwraps the hair that he stole, and it's turned into rocks. Yep. At, at which point he realizes he must rush back because he's, and even stop her from he coming across. Because he thinks that he's left a message and that she won't be coming across the wall, he suddenly senses that the plot is ticking again. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the point where things go wildly different because we need to have an action climax. Because in the book, it's just uh, the she realizes the the witch Michelle Pfeiffer witch realizes that she can't take Evane's heart because she's given it away to Tristan, which I'm pretty sure is the whole reason this book exists. Is Neil loves to turn wordplay like that into literalism, literal plot function. Septimus gets killed uh, by wandering into the witch's clutches unawares, and everybody else just kind of goes home. His mom is freed because the conditions of her curse being freed were, you know, fulfilled by random happenstances because of the quest. And um, his mom was secretly the princess to the kingdom all along, making him the only remaining male heir. That That's how the book ends. Mm-hmm. And he, they rule until his death, and then she goes back to the stars alone. But, but she will had always her be adventure. a sad star then, because because she knew love. Not so, the film. Not so, not so. Okay, but how did an action movie director craft some of the dullest chase scenes I've ever seen in my life? I don't know, but it's it's just He's dull. Like there's no sense of stayed. It's not quite as bad as the car chases in The Crow, but it's up there. I feel like the car chases in The Crow at least felt dynamic and urgent. That's true. They were just deeply confused as to who was doing yeah, what they to weren't whom shot for well, why. But at they any had given. urgency. This just feels like a sequence of events. Tristan's mom, Una, manages to stop Yvane from going over the wall, but womp womp, Michelle Pfeiffer shows up immediately and kidnaps Yvane. So now we gotta rush back to the witch's house and do a big climactic final Good battle. The witch's house is like ten feet away from the wall. Yeah, uh, everybody has access to fast travel in this, so apparently the candles weren't really that big a deal at no, all. You can't fast travel to places you haven't been before. Tristan had to travel overland. <laughs> Damn, then they're real slow setting up that uh, altar sacrifice, mm-hmm. which is another moment of like, all right. We can't just have these women not get what they want. We have to murder them. And punish them. Um, mm-hmm. Violently. So the way their magic works is they kill a fuzzy thing and they look at its innards. Like, that that's their shtick. They, they do organ divination. So one of them gets hilariously eaten by the animals. And uh, the other is... God, what even happens to her? She, she dies. She dies. It's not shot well, so I didn't notice it's really dark in there and like it looks like it wants to be weirdly enough the old gloomy mansion uh in casper is what it reminded me of Mm. the weird contraptiony basement with the spider webs everywhere um, and 
sort of like von helsing or underworld vibes mm. Speaking yeah of things that from like dark but very glistening yeah mm-hmm. and like a lot of this is manufactured in cgi but not very well so we just sort of made it muddy so you can't really you don't really have too many questions about the environment but we we assure you it's grand Okay, but worst a, a moment of silence for the worst CG in the moment uh, of the movie, which is of course the flaming beheading, <laughs> where they tucked this actress's head underneath a blanket, and then just kind of photoshopped on top. <laughs> it looks so bad. It doesn't even look like it's sticking to her head, but it's fine because it's magic. And, and the witches ha- have no hearts. They are terrible and mean. Mm-hmm. Because, again, every woman from this planet is terrible. The only good woman is from outer space. That's not true. Una, the captured princess, is okay. She's also completely passive. She extremely exists as a vehicle through which Tristan entered the story. Way to go, Mom. Solid. And through which he accesses the prize. Like, that's the only reason this country has this this patriarchal male heir rule, is so that we can skip over giving the woman who's been enslaved for 20 years anything. So that we can but give like, it directly she's not to Tristan. E- they don't even give a, like, a moment for her to be bitter about it, or to, like, nope. sneak Yvain as the better ruler, even, who is going to rule through her, her dumbass puppet son. Nothing. She's just so beneficently grateful that her son that she has met once since his birth is going to inherit. He knows nothing about leadership. No, he's not good at anything. Nope, he has no skills. He's an asshole. But, like, he does have an immortal deity wife who presumably crushes all opposition beneath her feet. She doesn't have any powers. The only thing she can do is shine. Yeah, well, look what that did to Michelle Pfeiffer. She melted. She's not that immortal. You just stab her. It's true. It's true. It's kind of a shit sort of immortality. (laughs) Like, you just stab her and she dies. (laughs) I think we can take her. But, But unlike the book's kind of bittersweet ending where, you know, he lives his natural life and, you know, she lives on, because of reasons, they're both immortal. Because he has her heart, which is, which makes that so creepy in retrospect like it's twee to begin with in a way that i'm here for but now it's just annoying and sir ian tries to sell it and he just can't bless you sir ian you tried it's good to hear him doing 15 minutes of work yeah you cash that paycheck sir the end oh and captain shakespeare is at their wedding and there's a guy sitting next to him so it's got as much progressive as representation as Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Wasn't it's so long? It is very unnecessarily long because they have to tie together every twist. So all of those scenes have to be there in order for the way it dovetails together mechanically at the end to function. But all they do is eat up time. Like, the scenes all exist for mechanical purposes, but they have no emotional heft. Like, they don't progress us in our understanding of the characters. All they do is slot another tumbler into place for 
the ending, which again is then changed from the book, so it doesn't even do what it did. No matter. Yeah, and it's so it's so joyless. Like I feel like a movie of this type lives and dies on the sense of whimsy that it can provide. Especially since you know you have the sassy princess and stuff. Like, Legend is not a good movie, but I kind of enjoyed watching it because of, you know, the way, j- just the sheer oddity of visual aesthetic, the way it kind of wraps around you. Yeah, and I mean, next week we're gonna watch another Quest movie that works because it commits fully to being the silliest possible movie. But this just, it it it, it doesn't care enough about its own absurdities to to really sell that this is a world where you know true love is real love has power these things are odd and what like it doesn't invite you into it in reality have a strength and a heft past the wall there's really no appreciable difference except that sometimes people do spells in one place and not in the other but like it doesn't feel different yeah and then we gotta come back around and I gotta tell you why I fucking hate the pirates. Oh yeah, let's end on that cheerful note. So, the pirates, right? So we're supposed to love Captain Shakespeare because, like, he pretends to be this rough, dangerous man but actually he's there to be a protective figure to them. But the way he is protective to them is he pretends for his crew's benefit to murder Tristan And then he tells them that he is going to um, drag this screaming frightened woman into his bedroom and they have to guard the door while he violently rapes her. And then he brings her out after allegedly, to his crew's supposed knowledge, violently raped her. And she just kind of hangs out with him for the rest of the week. And it's like, I mean, it's supposed to function on the knowledge, I guess, that they always knew that she was never any danger and you know that I know and it's an open secret, but like But but like functionally this 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 whole thing runs on this reinforcement of the idea that raping a woman you've captured is reasonable. Nobody is going to stand against you or help that woman, and that woman will have no hard feelings about it afterwards and will be happy to dance on the deck with you. And then he gives her two Tristan, who he has come back in in a different outfit and pretend to be a different person. So presumably this person Tristan is pretending to be is also presumably raping her. I feel like as far as it gets is it wants... Like, it never gets further in its thought process than... But he didn't, though. Oh, this toxic... Like, like uh, this toxic masculinity stuff is all, is all talk. It's all harmless. Right, because the only actually dangerous people are women. Well, and the princes, but they only kill each other, so. And they're funny. (laughs) They're very funny. I enjoy watching them kill one another. Can't lie. It's very good. (sighs) And like, what is this, what is this kingdom's political system and economy? What the hell is this place? If If this is your standard, you know. A murderocracy, like one does. I feel like that really is the subplot where the movie grasps the tone it's it wants to have. And that's just lugging the rest of the movie around right? with it. Like, ghost chorus are funny. 
Uh-huh. It's funny and absurd, and nobody questions the mechanics of how it works. And the CG is still bad, but in kind of an endearing way. <laughs> All of the dead prince ghosts are trapped until the succession happens. And they're stuck in the condition they were in when they died. So, like, Rupert Everett's face is squished because he got pitched out of a window and fell, a th- you know, off a sheer cliff. And the dude who died in the bath is still naked. That <laughs> they just sit around cracking wise and do not interact with anyone in any way. Oh, except for the one really gross joke where one of them is watching... One of them is watching our heroes bang. That's not great. Uh even with nice things, we can't have nice things. And all the poor women acting in this movie are all talented and stuck with these fucking thankless roles. Because uh-huh. they're not even good or interesting villains. It's Mm-mm. just women be competing. Women mm-hmm. be worrying about their skin. Women be they going do. to Sephora for their skincare routine. Shallow, always leading those men around, I tell you what. Again, mm. except for Yvain, who is literally not a human. Not a person. Well, she isn't like other girls, you know. She's not a person. But she's not even not like other girls in a way that's useful or interesting. It's trying to it's do this very thing depressing. where Tristan needs to learn that women aren't prizes at the end of the quest that you trade a token in for, except that's exactly what happens at the end of the movie. He just learned that Veronica was not the right person to trade a token in for, because she's not as good of a prize. This coin does not fit this slot. Well, I fucked it up. That's just a bummer, because, like, you know, I feel like you we've gone through the thing that most teenage fans of Neil go through as they age, where you come to realize that he's just the you-tried star of human beings. He does try. But he... He tries very he does, hard. But he does try. And there is, like, there's a reason his work is so beloved. There's good shit there. And it just does not come across, like, eight times in ten. Yeah. Well, that or it ages. Because he was being, like, as woke as he could think to be whenever whatever was made. And then when you come back to it, it's like, mmm... Mm. Oh, well, this. Ooh. Yeah. A lot of dead trans women in the Sandman, so huh? At least nine. Mm. At least nine. Yeah. But they were there and we were desperate. They existed before they were killed. <sighs> yeah, don't watch this movie. Maybe read the book. I, I feel like if you're into game and stuff already, like if you're not, I- I'd suggest his short story collections first or Good Omens, but. Yeah. Good Omens. It's not entirely balanced between the two authors' styles, but it's definitely a synthesis that couldn't have happened um, any other way. I mean, I feel like it's probably one of the most successful co-author novels ever, especially from two people with such strong individual voices. In terms of people who don't regularly work as a writing team, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, fair, fair. uh, But, like, from people who normally work as solo creatives oh this was depressing to revisit yeah because i remember i watched it in 2007 and i liked it i thought it was fun my standards were low i watched a lot of Dragonheart. oh yeah that'll that'll <laughs> which do was it. again another one i pitched for this i said and i like a fool said 
Uh, all right. Any final thoughts on this one? Of filmed adaptations of his work, I think this is probably the least successful. I would yeah. say this is a bad one to start with, especially. Oh, yeah, don't do that. Like, annoyance of YB aside, Coraline's a good movie. Yeah. Um, so pretty. The, the Neverwhere uh, BBC um, I think was good. Um, I know people like that they're American gods. Brian Fuller put his foot down about the positioning of that one scene. Which is a very good story. And then he flounced, so there was only That's one what season. He, does. he flounces. He, he's like your grandmother's bedroom, covered in flounces. <laughs> but he's a cis white man, so he does keep getting hired somehow. <laughs> um, again, I liked Mirror Mask. But this is just the least successful game and adaptation that I can think of off the top of my head, and I think that's largely because of wh what Brian was talking about, where it came out in a moment where they were just optioning property after property in a bid to sort of have set storylines to apply, to pour into this cookie-cutter mold. So th basically they bought they bought the map of this story which was very much in the fashion back then but yeah so if this is the only game and property you've encountered i'd say go back and check something else out go watch good omens, watch good omens. Oh, feelings. so many feelings tell us if you want us to to aggressively have feelings on a microphone for an hour or if please god dear stop <laughs> Also, somebody tell me what color Claire Danes' hair was in my so-called life. Because otherwise it's going to bother her. <laughs> I'm dropping right. engagement here. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Thank you so much for listening to us, y'all. Uh, if you like this episode, you can find more of our stuff online on a soundcloud or apple podcasts or stitcher by looking up trash and treasures uh, if there's a podcatcher you use that we're not on let us know as we want to be accessible to as many folks as possible uh, if you could leave us a rating or a five-star review we really appreciate it helps folks find us makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside uh, if you want to drop us an email you can send one to trash and treasures underscore pod at outlook.com and we like to get mail uh, maybe read it out on air uh, or you can always get a hold of us on social media. We are on Tumblr, uh, trashandtreasurespod.tumblr.com, or we're on Twitter, at TrashPod. Um, and uh, this week, I want to give a shout-out to at sheislovitself, um, who very sweetly said that uh, even when... Not uh, e even when she doesn't know the movies we're watching, she just likes listening to us bullshit I'm paraphrasing, but that's really nice to hear because I feel like we do weird movies that aren't always super easy to get sometimes. So it's nice to know we can still convey the experience of them, you know, even if even if you can't get at it. So thank you. I hope you're good out there living life. So you dropped a hint earlier. What are we doing next time? And next time we're making up for the fact that we've only got two of us on. We got a bumper crop next week. First time ever. Four people hosting. Two on two. You don't two. love me or Tag the ability team, to. Uh, baby. 
Oh, very well. I accept your challenge. I'll see you on the mic. <laughs> because we will be looking at uh, a little movie called Ready to Rumble. Yes. I will share my newfound wrestling nerddom. It'll be embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, so obviously we're going to have Sean back, but we've also got a guest coming. Please be nice to him. Make him feel welcome, everybody. All right. I, I don't think, I think we can trust our listeners on that front. So until next time, take care of yourselves. See y'all.